Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today, we've got two separate but in some ways related conversations about social media and how it intersects with democracy and society. In the first segment, we're going to hear from two founders of the Integrity Institute, a nonprofit organization founded by former Facebook employees who worked on integrity issues at the company. Then, we're going to look under the hood of some fresh ideas about how to democratize policymaking on social media platforms. First up, we're going to hear more about the Integrity Institute from its two founders. If you visit the organization's website at integrityinstitute.org, you'll find a letter from Jeff Allen and Sahar Masachi. In it, they write that, quote, We both worked on integrity teams at a big social platform. We saw firsthand the terrible things that people do to each other online and the ways that social platforms, as currently constituted, amplify and create all kinds of problems. We've seen mass online propaganda disguised as, quote, just normal citizens of country X, unquote. We've seen poisonous information ecosystems. We've seen some of the worst hate speech, bullying, hoaxes, and bad faith you can imagine. And yet still, we believe. It is possible for the social internet to help us thrive as individuals, as societies, and as democracies. It's possible, but it's not happening right now, unquote. They believe one solution is a community of integrity professionals with experience at a variety of social media platforms that can come together to share best practices. That's why they founded the Integrity Institute. I had a chance to catch up with Jeff and Sahar earlier this month. After we spoke, Jeff's name appeared in an important report in MIT Technology Review by journalist Karen Howe titled, How Facebook and Google Fund Global Misinformation that looks at the economic relationship between the tech companies and the operators of clickbait pages that are used to manipulate the information ecosystem. Howe tweeted that for the story, she worked with Jeff Allen to identify possible clickbait actors on Facebook using data from CrowdTangle and Facebook's publisher lists. Focusing on pages out of Cambodia and Vietnam, she says Allen wrote a custom clustering algorithm to find pages coordinating to post content. They then found which pages were participating in monetization programs. I recommend reading the report, and I plan to have Karen Howe on the show to tell us more about it soon. This may be an early example of the type of engagement the Integrity Institute can do in the public interest. The article is the unique combination of journalism, independent, and university research to uncover the data that underpins a very important story. Now, let's hear from Jeff and Sahar about their vision for the Integrity Institute. Jeff Allen, I'm the co-founder of the Integrity Institute. Uh, And my title there, we're sort of making up our own titles, but uh, I think I'm the chief research officer. My name is Sahar Masachi. I am a co-founder of the Integrity Institute, and I guess my title is executive director, which isn't one that I love, but I guess gets the point across. So let me ask you, uh, describe uh, how you came to this and and your careers prior to the Integrity Institute. Maybe Jeff will once again start with you and Sure. So in the, in the long, long ago, um, I was actually a, a physicist and an astronomer. Um, so uh, I got my PhD at NYU and I was working as a researcher there. I decided to leave academia uh, for, for a lot of the standard reasons uh, in 2013 um, and got into the data science racket. Uh, my, first, my first job out of uh, NYU was actually at about.com, uh, which is sort of like an online publisher. 
Um, they're, they're sort of search engine focused. And so a lot of what I did was study Google and figure out, you know, like what are, what are some of the easiest ways to increase traffic from Google search uh, and stuff like that, you know, which is a lot of fun, right? About.com was a very big publisher, still is, it's actually even bigger today. Um, and so, you know, anytime Google updated their search engine algorithm, we saw a step function in our traffic uh, and we got to debug exactly what was going on there and, and what were the winning content and what is the losing content um, and figure out strategies from that. And so I kind of like to say that my first uh, job as an integrity worker uh, was actually on the other side of the fence. <laughs> and I was being a little bit adversarial to the, the Google search, uh, you know, quality team um, and trying to figure out like what are easy solutions to get more page views. It was a lot of fun. I actually really liked that job. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, just, just driving up page views wasn't really something that I wanted to spend 20 years of my life doing. Uh, so my thinking was, uh, after a few years at About, I was like, okay, well, instead of reverse engineering platforms, what if I went to work for a platform and helped build it? Maybe that's a more meaningful thing to do. Um, and I think it was. Uh, you know, I started at Facebook of the local search team. So I was building search engines, you know, like at Facebook, which is a lot of like helping people find bars and restaurants and stuff like that. But, you know, by 2018, you know, there's all the various scandals out there. There's the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the IRA scandal. And so I sort of had the conversation where I was like, okay, like, you know, I'm, I'm fairly happy at this company, but I would be happier if I was working on a problem that was much more direct to a lot of the issues that, that I'm becoming to care about. And so got an integrity teams. Uh, so I started on Paige's integrity team and I did a little bit of work on uh, Instagram as well um, and did that for, for a couple of years and then left Facebook. Uh, you know, and one of the, one of the thoughts, you know, you have, you know, a lot of people have this kind of thought when they're an integrity worker is, okay, like this is a big, interesting problem, <laughs> you know, and, and there's plenty of work to be done at Facebook, but it's also much bigger than Facebook, right? It, it's kind of just about how are we going to have information ecosystems in the future on the internet as a whole. And so it's about other platforms and it's about the internet itself and it's about society. And so, you know, like one of the ideas that kind of like got stuck in my head when I was there was what would an open source integrity team look like, you know, and do. After I left Facebook, uh, spent a year at the DNC uh, on the counter disinformation team. There I was, you know, doing a lot of work helping state parties prepare for primary elections. Uh, so, you know, going through the checklist of, okay, you're a state party, your primary is happening in a couple of weeks. You know, what are all the things that you need to do to prepare for, you know, the coming online discussion? And obviously that was pretty wild during the pandemic. Uh, a lot of crazy stories when, you know, election, the election process is changing on a daily basis and sometimes right before the election, you know, the day before the election. Um, so that was a pretty wild ride. Um, I left the DNC at the end of 2020 and took a month uh, to sort of just like calm down <laughs> and, and, and unwind and relax a little bit um, and detach from the online space. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't long before uh, a friend from Facebook reached out and said, hey, uh, you need to talk to Sahar. Uh, he's, he's rounding up a lot of the old integrity folks and, and trying to build out a project. Sahar, so how did you come to this? Sometimes I start the story with my parents were refugees from revolutionary Iran and uh, to, went to Israel, the only country that would take them. And then I say, when I was two, we left Israel sort of like half, not quite refugees, not quite economic opportunity reasons uh, for the U.S. And uh, during the Gulf War, because of the Gulf War. That part of my family story really stuck with me in a lot of different ways. One of the ways was you may not want to care about the news or society or things happening beyond your day-to-day, -day, but you know the news can still happen to you. And another part of it was like civilization takes effort. 
and things can just sort of break down into, you know, people being killed on the streets pretty suddenly um, and pretty quickly. Uh, so I think like my whole adult life has been in this tension between society wants me to write code and do computer things. They keep trying to give me money to do computer things. And um, I really care about social things and um, doing good. So in college, people didn't realize I was a computer science major until like a while after they got to know me. After college, I had a lot of adventures, but I ended up at Wikipedia. And for a while, it felt like this was a great way to be a data and computer person, but also work for a cause I believed in. And after that, I went on a few more ventures and ended up joining Facebook. My friends would say, wow, this is interesting. Are you going to Facebook to sort of change it from within? And I'd say, no, I'm going to Facebook because uh, I would like a nice resume. I would like to actually learn these skills. I would like to be better at coding. I um, very much see this as a way for me to exchange my labor for value. But after, and I start off on a growth team, which turns out is really relevant to integrity. After a while, I heard about this team called the Civic Team. And it was a small uh, I would say almost backwater team, like it wasn't front and center in, in terms of the things that people knew about or interacted with. And uh, it was working on things like people should register to vote or people around the world should should vote and know who's on the ballot and know what they stand for. Sounded great. I joined it um, as fast as they would let me. To get in, you had to have a conversation about values and the values of the civic team, which included the civic oath which said things like be selfless, be fair, be constructive, um, be responsible. And I just really, really like that. And uh, on the civic team, those same scandals that Jeff talked about happened. And our response was to create an election integrity subunit. I was there and uh, did a lot of work that I'm proud of. And uh, it grew and grew and grew. We renamed ourselves Civic Integrity. I moved to Boston for love and left the team. Uh, because Facebook HR didn't want anyone working remotely, even, you know, physically in a different office, which, you know, still get angry about six months later, it all went crashing down anyways. Um, and uh, left Facebook um, at the end of 2019. Uh, I have a pattern in my life of just taking six to nine months to sort of calm down between jobs. So I did that, you know, had some more adventures and I ended up as a Berkman fellow. And uh, at the Berkman Klein Center for the Study of Internet and Society, at Harvard University, where I was a fellow from 2020 to 2021. You're welcome, Berkman comms team. People started taking me seriously. And they started, um, the stuff that I would say that was obvious from the perspective of an integrity worker was treated as like a really big deal and really deep by people that I respected. And it just gave me the signal that maybe there's something here. It didn't really feel fair that people would just talk to me about it. They should talk to people like Jeff and, and sort of the, the smarty pants and in integrity. So I don't know, we, I just started gathering them together. And there are just so many different reasons, right? There's the story I told you. There's the story of just like all these different fights that you'd have inside of Facebook where you would propose this thing that was very reasonable and you wish that you had outside validators just saying, yes, this is a reasonable thing. Or um, times in which what the right thing to do was actually just unknown, like technically. And, and you just feel this feeling of like, there's all these people out there who really want Facebook to do the right thing. Like if I could somehow let them know that I would like a 20 page report on like, I don't know, what's the best metric for understanding is this group civically healthy or not? 
they, you know, we could have a really productive conversation, but they don't know I need it. I'm too overworked to make it myself. So this project is going to die, something like that. These companies talk about themselves as private, like giant governments, right? Like um, Mark Zuckerberg talked about that for a while. Well, if it's a government, then where are the think tanks? Where are the like, you know, civil society that grows up around a center of power like that to like help it uh, do its job better? So all those ideas and more sort of like rolled up and um, we started meeting. So some people might listen to that and say, well, you know, the worst possible thing is that Facebook has such power that it's so big that it is a, a government scale entity. What can we do to kind of make it smaller, um, reduce its power, um, certainly to to hold it to to account in a way? How do, how do you feel about the kind of scale of these entities and, and, the, and the role that that plays in these integrity issues? I think this is this is this is sort of a space where you know I personally feel like drawing like what is my lane and what is not my lane. And you know, when we're talking about economic concentration and the impact that that has on economies and stuff like that, like I'm not an economist. I'm an integrity worker. I think about information retrieval systems, um, which is which is a bit far away from you know thinking about economies and and how it all plays out. So, you know, on a lot of this stuff, I think I just defer to economists and and people who think about like what does centralized power like mean um, um, in economies. Or, or maybe even like, you know, information ecosystems, you know, defer to sociologists and, and journalists and stuff on that. As an institute, like part of our job is figuring out what is the sort of consensus viewpoint of integrity professionals. Um, and, and this is one that, you know, honestly, like within the community is a little bit contentious. Like we have various opinions all over the map. Um, and so like as an institute, we like don't have a strong statement here. So let me ask you um, also as well, just about what this, this kind of growth in this set of roles is, and, and maybe just for the listener, you know, what do you qualify as an integrity worker at this point? I mean, I, you know, the the civic integrity team at Facebook has obviously been in the news as a concept. Um, and I think people generally know what goes on uh, or what went on in that team uh, before it was, it was disbanded or, just, or scattered into different parts of the organization. What kind of constitutes integrity work in, 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 from your point of view? I think everyone has a different personal definition, and maybe one day we'll be able to have a really crisp one. Part of this journey has been just seeing parts of integrity work that we didn't expect or didn't really think much about and realize like, oh yeah, that's integrity work too. Uh, so I, I don't really, I feel like we aren't developed enough in a field to have really hard boundaries. And part of the way I think about it is like, uh, where's the sort of like center of the circle and like, what are the edges of the circle? And they're both in the circle, but um also, different people might put the center in different places. All that throw clearing aside, to me, integrity work is the work of protecting people on social platforms and doing it from the perspective of like systems thinking or like ecosystem thinking. It definitely encompasses teams like product-focused integrity teams that think about product changes to make uh, systems or information ecosystems and, and platforms safer. But it would also include um, people who are more in, in the, they think of themselves as doing cybersecurity and fighting information attacks, right? Um, it includes people who work on feed ranking and just think about how do we rank this feed for, you know, purposes other than just like most engagement. And uh, it also includes people who think about content moderation, maybe, or work on content moderation, but maybe at scale, right? So how do we build 
better processes? How do we um, make better tools for these people to do their job better and like cluster stuff like that? I have this line that I've used somewhere else where like security is protecting like code from attack. Ethics is protecting people from a company. Integrity is protecting people sort of from each other, um, like protecting users on a platform from other users. And that encompasses a lot of stuff. That's, that's sort of my take. Integrity has a connotation of structural integrity. It also has a connotation of in, like ethical integrity and that's there. But um, like the point we're making is how do we build something resilient? Uh, and if you have that mindset that you're probably an integrity worker. Jeff, anything to add on that? One thing I, I really love and think about a lot is sort of the history of integrity work and how it's this weird field that has existed almost as long as the internet. But at the same time, it's existed in like isolated, you know, teams within isolated companies. And so while it is actually like a very old field, it isn't a very well-defined and well-structured field. Um, you know, there's not like, uh, maybe, maybe these are coming online now, like at universities, but like you couldn't, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't take a university course on trust and safety or quality or integrity in a computer science department. Hopefully we will in the future. Hopefully, hopefully I mean, and universities are thinking about this now, right? But, you know, integrity work, it's, it's old. It's as old as the internet. Uh, you know, some of the original teams would be spam fighting teams, you know, and, and it was probably just like one or two engineers curating a list of like, here's things that we classify as spam and, and block it from the platform and automatically reroute it and stuff like that. Some of the earlier teams that I think a lot uh, about are like the Google search quality team. And so like a lot of quality work sort of falls into this bucket of thinking about, okay, you know, we're a platform. What do we call quality content? You know, and how do we come to a decision about what is quality or not? And are we rewarding quality content or low quality content on our platform? And so there's a lot of like thinking going on there at Google, like in the early 2000s. And it's sort of structuring itself now around, you know, there's trust and safety work, there's quality work, there's integrity work, there's moderation work, um, you know, and like these are sort of like the structures that are forming around it. And I think to be concrete about where we're sort of thinking now um, in the Integrity Institute, you know, we have a couple of sort of fuzzy boundaries. Uh, these are sort of like the gray zones where, you know, within it is clearly integrity work and, you know, when it starts to get fuzzier um, at the edges. And so one of the edges is like on the cybersecurity side, you know, and, and there you sort of have this border where, you know, the cybersecurity team meets sort of the information operations team, right? Because you have like cybersecurity techs that are operations, you know, like Sahar said, attacking the code. Um, and then you also have Intel operations teams that are trying to figure out, okay, like, is our platform resilient against information operations? You know, how do we stop them? How do we find them systematically? Uh, and so like, that's one sort of edge, you know, on integrity work. And then the other side, like Sahar mentioned, is on uh, sort of ranking teams, right? And, you know, the Twitter feed ranking team and the Facebook ranking team and the YouTube ranking team. Um, and thinking about, you know, is, is our algorithm, you know, making the right types of content successful? And, you know, is it not amplifying the harmful type of content that we don't want on the platform? Like the field, the field is taking shape, right? Like it's actually kind of an exciting moment. Um, and like the world is sort of waking up that like this needs to be a defined discipline. And so of course, like there's multiple organizations that are, that are sort of like taking on this challenge and we all have, you know, we have different angles, um, but we're sort of all working towards the same goal of, of making this a real field. So, you know, one of the things that's happening too, obviously, is it's happening in a perilous time. You know, um, you've got democracies generally on the back foot across the world. So many of the measures like the Internet Freedom 
measures that were announced by Freedom House again this year, showing market declines and various forms of, of freedom and free expression across the globe. It's sometimes it's hard for people, you know, to kind of like tease out uh, social media from these broader problems. Um, how do you think about that? What's the role of integrity in this context? I mean, it w- you know, when things seem to be moving in such a wrong direction. I, I think I would point to our vision uh, and our vision at the Institute is a social internet that helps societies, democracies, and individuals thrive. And so I think we are generally optimistic, right? Like we do believe that there is a social internet that, you know, is, is positive in, in all of these spaces. I do think that we, we, there is like work to be done there. And I think it's entirely fair to ask like, what is the net role of social media in all of these things? I think, um, you know, th- this is just sort of a personal take, right? But obviously like society's big, there's a lot of influences on it. Um, and, you know, is, is social media the real cause of all this stuff? It's like, I don't know, I'm not a sociologist. This is a really hard question to answer, but it is fair to ask the question of like, is social media playing a net positive or a net negative role overall in this sort of direction? And I think like, that's, that's something that we wanna try and tackle. I think as an institute, like, you know, one, one thing the public space is missing is just sort of ways to where we all agree that this is the right data to be looking at to answer these questions, that this data is public and open and, and have the conversation like in this a more structured and meaningful way. You know, a lot of it is, you know, independent researchers finding things happening on social media that are bad. They point it out. And then the platforms come back and say, oh, well, that's like a tiny fraction of what's happening on our platform. You know, just ignore it. These are just anecdotes. What we really need is a structured way to have these conversations where all parties agree that we're sort of talking about the same things and that the things that we're talking about are meaningful uh, and should be given consideration. Um, and so that is like one of the goals of the Institute is to like help contribute to a more structured and uh, structured conversation. One thing that you'll see from us is that we're like careful to say the Institute doesn't have too many positions. We're speaking personally, stuff like that. But uh, one thing that I feel very strongly about is that in our vision statement, it does say, you know, democracy is good. We don't take many stances, but that is a stance that we are like planting a flag on. And um, that does seem important. to be that does seem to be kind of almost, uh, you know, not necessarily agreed in Silicon Valley. Uh, your words, not mine, but I, you know, I have some friends who have opinions that worry me. Uh, democracy is good. And I think that you can see from our vantage point ways that non-demo like like intelligence agencies are attacking these platforms in ways that are pretty obvious from non-democratic countries and from democratic countries honestly and just sort of like explicitly or implicitly trying to weaken the social fabric of different places and um uh they're like if you think of if you think of a social platform as like a very complex system it's it has codes it has bugs these bugs are being exploited. Why don't we just fix those bugs? Like we can see them, we know how to fix them. Uh, that's not gonna solve all the integrity problems in the world, but it, it is quite low hanging fruit. Let me just ask a couple of things about how you plan to interact, A, with the industry, and then also B, with government, because I, th- I feel like those are two kind of key stakeholders in, in what you're doing. So what, what will the model be with working with 
uh, either executives from the big platforms or uh, with the platforms themselves, in, you know, as corporate entities. What what do you expect will happen? I mean, can people join the institute now? Uh, can, you know, is there a, a membership fee, or, or do you intend, you know, that type of thing? Uh, you know, can I can I if I'm if I'm on the um, integrity team at Twitter, can I join, or or how does it work? Yeah, please. Uh, if you're on the integrity team of any company, please join us. Go to integrityinstitute.org and uh, click on the Let's Talk button. Right now, we don't charge dues, and that might change in the future. But we uh, we want members, and members are part of our community. And that's you know we're creating a sort of space for integrity professionals to talk to each other, in the same way that cybersecurity professionals really did a great job of talking to each other. Software engineers talk to each other. You know, we're a professional association for people to do that in. Um, we also work with companies directly, and we're still figuring out the model. And it's still early. We only launched a few weeks ago, but uh, uh, we're in conversations with companies big and small. They seem to like us. Uh, they seem to get that we are constructive participants in all this. You know, we'll probably iterate this over time. But what we're saying to them right now is is something like, uh, "Look, we're trying to help. We love to talk to your teams and tell them sort of." from our point of view as an institution, like what seem to be best practices, hear back from them, incorporate that, have a, have a dialogue. We think that um, if you are, like we would love to set up conversations where integrity teams sort of formally talk to each other and, and share tips between companies. And also like, yeah, uh, we, we want members and members are people who are or have been on integrity teams who speak for themselves and not their employer, who've taken the integrity Hippocratic Oath and who um, abide by our code of conduct. Uh, we're also talking to policymakers and NGOs and academics and journalists and anyone else really who wants to talk to us. And we're very careful when we talk to these uh, types of stakeholders to say like what we are, which is uh, if you want like a juicy hit on company X, like that's not us. Uh, if you want to understand the system from the perspective of people who've worked on it, like we're so happy to help. Like uh, we recognize this is like a scary new thing to some people or just there's a lot of confusion about how it works. And we're just here to sort of give you a map of how, how an integrity worker sees the world, right? Like how, what is a feed ranking system like at its core? What are the sort of obvious ways that you could fix it um, across every platform and sort of the, the Lego blocks of understanding that you need? Are there um, some obvious yeah. ways? I think that like, Maybe we're getting into uh, our own personal point of view. I think like um, one thing that we've said a lot, or one thing that I've talked about is like the role of metrics in, in companies. And just like, uh, you could think of, the, of a feed ranking algorithm as just a machine that tries to optimize for one thing, right? You can even think of a company as a machine that tries to optimize for one thing. And if you are in a company that tries to optimize for, I don't know, engagement, it will do a very good job of doing like a hill climb to find a local optima of what version of our product should maximize engagement. If you're an integrity team, what you do is you say, oh, uh, we would like to uh, maximize on or just take any other value into account. Um, and uh, almost by necessity, you're going to drag off the top of that hill. And now 
every team in the company, if, if you aren't careful, is incentivized to undo your work and go back to the top of the hill. Uh, they're probably not going to do it. They're not going to do it consciously. They're not going to do it obviously. It's just going to sort of happen by, you know, the accumulation of of lots of different things they'll try that has the effect of of rolling it back. And so, so there are a lot of you know, like I like to talk to myself as like I'm a plumber. I have a whole big bag of tools. Uh, each tool is relevant to a different sort of problem you might have. Uh, but um, you know, we don't have time to go through all the tools and like go go through like three years of plumber university. Uh, let's talk about you know the organizational incentives for just like let, allow plumbers to do their jobs, right? Uh, I lost the plot here, but I hope that makes sense. The metaphor may break down, but I actually, <laughs> I actually think it's quite an interesting point that you raised there about, you know, the idea that when the integrity team um, may put a change in to the, the way that the platform is functioning, that, that other teams are then incentivized uh, potentially to make up the difference in terms of, reaching the goal. I mean, but doesn't that ultimately come down to leadership, uh, to, you know, shareholder interests, to, you know, problems to do with the way these companies are, are governed or, or even operate in a kind of capitalist system points us back to business model, right? Um, is it possible to have large scale platforms with integrity that also satisfy their shareholders' interests? Yeah, I'll take this one. Um, and, and to sort of build on like the plumber analogy uh, from Sahar. Oh, dear. So I, I think the official Integrity Institute take on this is the, the best people, right? Like the people who are best situated to find solutions to all the various integrity problems that exist are the integrity workers who are there uh, confronting it and like wading through the issue, understanding the trade-offs, understanding all sides of it. Um, and who have experience, right? Like building building solutions to these integrity problems. And so, you know, the general take is, and, and what the Integrity Institute wants to do is sort of empower those workers through various means so that, you know, they're, they're able to be effective at their job. And so, so this is one example where transparency helps, right? Like we believe that if there's more transparency from companies in general, this will better empower integrity workers and can, you know, change, change how businesses decide to make various trade-offs between business interests and, you know, social interests uh, and public good interests. And I think, you know, in, in our vision, right, like we, we believe in a social internet that helps, you know, individual societies, democracy thrive. I think we are optimistic. I, I think there is absolutely a business model that can, you know, be for the public good and also still be profitable. Um, I think there's definitely situations in, we can, in which we can all be winners. I think, you know, we're still young in this space, right? And, and internet companies have been growing and optimizing themselves to grow like over fairly short timescales. You know, no company here is thinking about the 100-year timescale um, and like what it looks like to be a successful company on the 100-year timescale. And, you know, I think just like, you know, one of the one of the analogies I really like to go to hist uh, historically is sort of like the journalism and sort of like the revolution in journalism at the late 1800s, early 1900s, when, you know, you went from yellow journalism and sensationalism and scandals to, you know, 1914 and the Associated Press saying, here's best practices and here's what it means to be a journalist. Um, and how, you know, companies that took that seriously and thought about it early, like the New York Times, are the ones that have survived for hundreds of years. You know, I'm optimistic that as we start thinking about social media on, on larger and larger timescales, companies will, you know, be more thoughtful about the information ecosystems are creating and, and what, you know, long-term health looks like. 
and we will be good at, we will become better at finding uh, how to build a platform responsibly uh, with like longevity and that actually works for everyone. So I will just say, I've been teaching a course at um, NYU, uh, but that also offers uh, sections with other faculty at Cornell Tech and Columbia, CUNY, uh, the new school. It's called Tech Media and Democracy. And we've always brought students through from multiple disciplines. And, you know, even five years ago, it didn't feel like there were necessarily a great many jobs in this direction. Um, and I have been heartened that now there are, you know, uh, uh, a lot of different types of jobs in these teams and on these platforms um, that let people work on, on these things. You mentioned, of course, that, you know, universities may start to train people up in this direction. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, just what you see happening out there in the world with regard to how talent is coming along, where it's coming from, um, and I don't know, maybe the extent to which you feel certain disciplines prepare people better or for this type of work. I'll say something quick while everyone else thinks the real answer. Uh, one of my best friends uh, has a BA in English and a PhD in sociology. And he is fantastic integrity worker uh, because he did computational sociology, turns out. And that's a really interesting way of both getting the system its systemic view and also like a grounding in sociology classic. So I don't know, that seems, that seems interesting. I think that um, it's not just computer science, you know, uh, Jeff is a PhD in physics, astrophysics, whatever it is, math, I don't understand. And uh, he's able to talk about information retrieval algorithms and have a sort of like comfort with them in a way that I haven't because I haven't had that sort of background. Uh, it turns out that um, it really is super multidisciplinary and like people from different fields have a lot to offer and we, we sort of need it. And we even saw it on, I don't know, personally on the civic team, uh, some of my favorite people to work with were uh, the researchers and, and uh, PhDs in social science. I think we're about to see an explosion of jobs and professionalism of this kind of work and more places. Um, maybe we'll have a jobs board soon. I don't know, but I don't know if we're the best people to answer this, honestly, because we are sort of the older generation. One of the people we have had on this podcast in the past, um, a fellow called Joe Bach Coleman. I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, who's a, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington. He was part of a set of researchers that wrote a paper over the summer called uh, uh, Stewardship of Global Collective Behavior, kind of arguing that figuring all this stuff out should be regarded as a kind of crisis discipline, um, that we've perturbed the way societies work with these social system, systems and, and digital media, and that we don't know what the implications are. Um, and so he was very much arguing for this idea of having a broad variety of experts, uh, including computational social scientists, but also mathematicians and physicists and you know lawyers and all the rest of the lot kind of looking at this. Um, and it does seem like it needs that kind of global human scale effort to kind of get to the bottom of, you know, to your question earlier, what are the factors that are exacerbating certain social fissures? Uh, what are the things that social media could maybe even possibly help to solve things? I, I just want to jump on that because I love it. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the things that stuck in my head when I was at Facebook was 
were kind of the new stewards of an information ecosystem, you know, and, and Facebook is, is maybe one of the biggest information ecosystems that's ever existed, you know, and humanity. And, and here we are as stewards of it. And what does it mean to be a steward of an information ecosystem and to bring in the multi multidisciplinary approach? I think it's, it's probably something that journalists, right, have a, have a long history of, of grappling with and, and what does it mean to like behave responsibly in this way? Um, I'm sure local newspapers, you know, they are the stewards of their local information ecosystem. And if you're the editor in chief of a local newspaper, you sort of have to grapple with, yeah, like, what is the information that my community needs? Um, what is the information that really matters? And like, how do you get there? I think it is, it is super multidisciplinary. I think, you know, one of the things that one of the ways that we describe ourselves as the Institute is um, as a bridge, you know, the solution, the solution to how society figures this out is going to require input from a whole lot of spaces. And, you know, we're sort of building the bridge from the engineering and product side of things in the hopes that others are building bridges, you know, on the other side to meet up with us. Um, and so, you know, like engineering, technical solutions, product solutions are sort of one piece of this puzzle. And we also need like the bigger society solutions. Um, and we're sort of like trying to meet there, you know, and, and personally, personally, I really like this. So, so, you know, when I was younger and deciding, you know, what field do I want to go into and, and, and what do I want to do? Um, you know, there's a few things that were, were fairly influential on me. And one of them was, um, sort of this idea from technologists in the nineties. And I want to credit it to Neil Stevenson, actually, who also coined metaverse. So it's like in the zeitgeist, but I might be misremembering this, but you know, the idea that, you know, in the future, you know, it will be weird for people to major in computer science or major in coding, right? And, and majoring in computer science and coding would be like majoring in English where it's like, no, like if you're, a, if you want to major in biology, you still have to take an English course and learn how to write. Everyone needs to learn how to write, but, you know, few people should focus on, you know, the discipline of writing, um, you know, you should take that writing skills and, you know, you can also go off and do other things. And when I was deciding, okay, what do I want to study? What do I want to do? I really liked physics because it was, you know, I loved math and I loved computers. Uh, you know, I loved programming and I was like, okay, cool. So physics, you know, is basically just a way to marry those two together. You know, physics will let me code all day uh, for the purposes of advancing math and like understanding of the universe. Um, and that's kind of what I'm interested in. And I think, you know, we're, it'll, it'll be interesting to see like, you know, Obviously, like in our backgrounds, you know, when we were in when we were in school, you know, there weren't these kind of classes that sort of spanned that bridge, you know, between engineering and outside society. Hopefully there are now classes and it sounds like they're coming up that are actually like building out that bridge so that people can can actually span it. You know, but a lot of us who are in the industry have had to sort of learn it as we go learn in the field. You know, it occurs to me that even as we, you know, build these information ecosystems and we put computational social scientists and others onto the task of figuring out how they work. You know, we're also kind of instrumenting the public sphere in a way that could be quite dangerous, you know, particularly in authoritarian uh, contexts. Do you worry about that? Do you worry about the field of integrity producing tools that, that could be used for wrong? I mean, a lot of people will look at Facebook's civic integrity team and say, well, that's where the censorship was happening. Yeah. Right. I get a little, I don't know, angry, annoyed, frustrated when people bring up censorship. Like censorship is content moderators, right? It's people being paid $12 an hour to like thumbs up or thumbs down content. And the stuff we're doing is, you know, putting in speed bumps instead of like, you don't need a cop to give people tickets for speeding if you put in speed bumps. So like they can't speed, right? The stuff that we're working on is the alternative to censorship because you are creating a sort of resilient structure that, uh, 
looks at behavior uh, and sort of like makes riskier behavior more difficult and doesn't look at content and lets people say whatever they want. Uh, we are the realistic alternative to censorship to solve the same sort of problems. Also, I think that like the stuff we're talking about works. They'll never hire enough cops to hand out enough speeding tickets for all the people who are like, you know, teleporting throughout social media. But um, to your larger point, we have an integrity oath on our website and it is a Hippocratic oath because we think that integrity professionals have a responsibility uh, just like lawyers or doctors do to sort of the profession and to the public and not just their current employer. Um, we take it really seriously. It has good stuff. It's sort of the foundational values charter of our organization. And we think that, you know, not every integrity worker needs to be a member of the Integrity Institute that we hope they will be. But our, our vision is that every integrity worker signs up for the integrity Hippocratic Oath. And on top of that, I'll say my understanding, speaking personally, of the problems that we face right now are that like things are just really obviously wrong, right? Decisions about, there are just really obvious, stupid attacks on information ecosystems that everyone with a functioning moral compass can agree are not okay and uh, you know should be fixed. Uh, there are decisions made to block the actions of integrity teams that are transparently for political motivations or transparently for not the public good. And uh, that's sort of like, I think the place that we're at in many, in many ways right now, if we win that, if we fix that and we get to the like harder questions of like different conceptions of what the public good is and different people with functioning moral compasses coming to different conclusions, like I would be so excited to be in that world. We'd be in a much better world. You know, that's a great problem to have. Please let's get there. Jeff, you, you remain similarly optimistic. You seem like an optimist, despite having worked for the Democrats. How am I supposed to interpret that? Um... <laughs> <laughs> I like that Sahar's kind of point, he's point, pointed us to a future, you know, uh, beyond this present moment. Um, I guess maybe, I don't know if you want to build on that. What, how, yeah. do we get, how do we get out of this morass that we're in at the moment? You know, do you have a similar long-term optimism? Yeah, I actually do. Um, as as an integrity worker, right? Like when you know when you're when you're sort of like in the in the weeds of the information ecosystem, you know it's not uncommon to be surprised by a new type of attack or a new type of harm that can occur on social media. It's also not surprising at all to find a new type of amazing thing that people are doing with social media. You know, I'll, I will always forever be inspired by the the million different ways that teenagers are using Instagram in ways that I never would have predicted. And they are running, you know, they are hustlers and they are like building businesses as teenagers based around, you know, their BTS fandom. And they're actually like making money and probably saving up for college and like, hell yeah, more power to them. There's a lot of amazing things like social media enable. And, you know, on your question of censorship and like, where are we going and what direction we're going? Um, you know, hopefully we're building towards a social media that is more empowering to these people who are trying to do genuine community building, um, you know, genuinely trying to create communities that, you know, reflect themselves and, you know, maybe they're unique and they can connect to other people who are unique in ways that they couldn't in, you know, like the physical space, um, empowering new movements. You know, as an integrity worker, you just, you see the good and the bad. You know, I am inherently optimistic that we can have a social internet that works better for the good than it does for the bad. Well, it sounds like if we get there, Integrity Institute will have uh, played its part. So uh, Jeff and Sahar, thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you. Justin. It's been a pleasure. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up, if you go to platformdemocracy.com, you will find a proposal from Aviv Avaja, a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. The paper is titled, Towards Platform Democracy, Policymaking Beyond Corporate CEOs and Partisan Pressure. The paper starts from the position that Facebook, YouTube, and other platforms make important decisions about the speech of billions of people, but that those decisions are made by corporate executives or may be influenced by partisan or authoritarian governments. Aviv proposes an alternative, which he refers to as platform democracy. He envisions a set of processes that could give us all a stake in platform policies through, quote, the creation of independent people's mandates for platform policies, something invaluable for the impacted populations, the governments which are constitutionally unable to act on speech, and even the platforms themselves, unquote. To interrogate his ideas, I also invited two other guests into the conversation, Rene DiResta and Joe Bach Coleman. I'll let them introduce themselves and we'll get right into the conversation. Uh, I'm Aviv Avadia at the Belfer Center and in the Technology and Public Purpose Program at Harvard University. I'm Rene DiResta, the Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. I'm Joe Bach Coleman, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public. So quite pleased to have the three of you here and to discuss this paper, which Aviv has put forward uh, towards platform democracy, policymaking beyond corporate CEOs and partisan pressure, uh, which is published to the website of the Belfer Center. Um, Aviv, what is this about? Can you give us the, the high level on what this working paper is about, what you're trying to accomplish here? Yeah, so there's sort of two main pieces to this. First of all, I put forward that platforms can actually be structured in a democratic way. And what I mean is that, that at least at the beginning, I'm not saying, oh, we should have, like, everything should be done democratically for a Facebook or Google or Twitter. What I mean is that specific decisions that are specific, especially those of great import, can be brought to the people who are being impacted by those decisions and therefore actually have a mandate of those people. And that allows a, a number of really interesting things. So first of all, we have this like problem right now, which is either you have like, let's say Facebook, um, Zuckerberg is just deciding things. And that has a lot of downsides because it's just unaccountable based on dictatorial leader. It's like a king. Um, and on the other hand, you have governments, and that sounds great, especially if they're democratic, but there's all these partisan pressures, pressures which might be explicit regul might create explicit regulation like laws against you know speech that maybe would be ideal to have um just because it happens to be against the current regime or because or just like pressure to like not make changes that prevent let's say misinformation on your platform and so you have these competing pressures and it would be really great if there was a way to have the people who are being impacted having a direct voice in that and so that's the first piece platform democracy just the idea that that is possible and introducing a set of processes that allow that. 
And then I introduce a very specific process, the citizen assembly style process or the mini public process. And that's one, you know, very proven, at least comparatively, um, approach, which, you know, it's been using um, nations around the world. And it, it describes a very particular way of having the people being impacted by a, um, by a policy to, to really deeply understand and then make a decision around that um, in order to inform policymaking. So give me an example just quickly of how this might work in practice. What is it you're imagining would happen? So you've, you've laid out, of course, that Facebook right now governed by Mark Zuckerberg, who is its generally unaccountable uh, CEO, um, who has, you know, he's created this oversight board, uh, but it's still him kind of pulling the reins, right? Um, what would this mean for a Facebook if, if they were to adopt this approach that you've got? Yeah, so I guess at a very high level, it means that they give a chunk of resources to a third-party facilitation organization, and that's our, like ideally a lump sum similar to the oversight board, where they no longer have the ability to really pull any strings on that, at least you know ostensibly and 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 really in practice. And then that facilitation organization works with a whole set of stakeholders that they believe are necessary for that, and you know. There's a set of processes that you can use to support identifying those stakeholders, develops introductory guidebook and so on for a set of really there's a, there's a lot of details depending on the specifics of what you're trying to do. But in this case, I'm going to give a specific example that's local or that, that's national just to keep it really simple or comparatively simple. And so in that case, you have a random selection of people, so let's say 100 people who are chosen from across the United States, so we're talking about something that's just a U.S.-based policy around, let's say, one very particular issue, so in this case, political ads, and they're brought together on Zoom or in person over the course of, usually it's like a set of weekends, so people have time to really dig in, and they're trained up on, here's a very specific process we're going to be using that really allows everyone to speak, everyone to learn from each other, both from their own experiences and from the, the stakeholders who are brought in. So there, they have the, there's this um, the selection phase, this learning phase, learning of the process, and then this deliberation phase, where the different stakeholders, what that could be in this case the U.S. government, um, so politicians on both sides of the aisle can come in and speak. Um, it can be the people at Facebook, and it can be civil society organizations. All of those have their opportunity to sort of express what they think should be the actual policy around political ads within the that that context. And then there is, um, you know, over the course of, again, this is, let's say, 12 days spread over a number of weekends. And it really depends, again, if you're doing it in person versus virtual. There's a whole suite of things that's been done all over the world in many, many different or different approaches. But the at the end of that, you have a set of proposals which are then voted on by that assembly who, ha who now has this deeper knowledge. Then there's, ideally... Uh, up front, there's a commitment where let's see if a certain number of votes that leads to that requires an advisory response that requires a response from the, the commissioning organization, in this case, let's say a Facebook, or if it maybe if it's high enough vote threshold, then that has then that will actually get implemented. So that's sort of an end to end way of thinking about this, the, the specific platform assembly process. So the idea is that a Facebook would subject itself to this process. It would have to agree on some level to accept the decisions uh, that came out of the process um, and to expose itself to 
this body and the, the way that it may, it may decide. We've talked about similar ideas on this podcast before, in particular, Chris Riley from R Street Institute came on, talked about some ideas that he had helped develop around multi-stakeholder content governance, sort of sounded in familiar in some ways uh, to what you're, you're doing here, this sort of deliberative process. Um, but he kind of was careful to put some bounds around the types of decisions that this entity could make. So I guess maybe just a last question for you to get this out on, on the table, but what types of decisions specifically, and if you could just maybe run down the list, do you imagine this process could take on with regard to platform governance and what types of things would it not take on? Right. So I, I want to be a little bit more clear also about one piece of this, which is like a core part of this, this assembly process is that it is a democratic lottery. So it's a, it's a representative sample of the population that's being impacted. Um, and there's a lot of reasons people think that should fail. Um, but in practice, it has been done by France, by Ireland, by uh, South Korea for like really important and, and, and controversial decisions, things like abortion and nuclear policy. So I just want to make sure that that is clear because that helps frame the types of decisions that are possible. And so some of these decisions that have been used by processes like these are extremely complex and controversial, right? So things like, and, and more like values-based, like abortion, like what should be the policy in Ireland? Um, other decisions are much more sort of technocratic and like, or like uh, very technical, like how should we actually handle this nuclear waste in Australia, <laughs> right? And, um, and so there actually is a fairly broad suite of decisions that you can have. And I sort of put it onto three buckets. There's the, here's a very specific policy question, like political ads. What exactly should we be doing? What should be allowed? What should we not be allowed? Like, what are the rules? And then there's more values-based decisions. And you can think of this as sort of like the abortion thing in Ireland. It's like, what should, what's the really high level way in which we're even thinking about what should this platform, and I think a good example of this actually is one of the most important questions is what should a platform be rewarding with its recommendation engines? And this is the sort of thing that even something like a Facebook oversight board could lean on. Like there could be a set of values that are decided not by Zuckerberg, but by this democratic lottery, the citizen assembly that, that then could be informing Facebook policy. And that could, and all Facebook policy would be downstream of that within that jurisdiction, or if it's a global assembly, then across the world. And then the third example is agenda setting. And so this is where an assembly is just tasked with what is the most important thing that we need to be exploring or that, that the, the organization needs to be exploring or that further assemblies should be, should be focused on. And so in Belgium, they have this model in an area of Belgium where you actually have an assembly that, that goes on for 18 months. It's, it's, a, it's a smaller thing. It's this panel. And all they're tasked with is deciding what are the three most important issues that needs to be explored. And then those issues are then brought to a net, another assembly um, who then make decisions based off that. And so it can act as all three of these, they can, it can support all three of these kinds of decision-making. So one of my favorite things about your working paper here is that you actually uh, admit, of course, this sounds hopelessly naive. Um, and you say clearly Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg, their CEO colleagues won't be giving up their seats for a quote platform president anytime soon. And you also point out that Facebook actually tried this uh, once before, that it ran a referendum um, as about a dozen years ago. What was that about? Yeah, so Facebook ran a referendum. Referendums or elections 
don't work for a platform environment. So I think the, the, the normal, the, the democratic mechanisms that we're all super familiar with, like just don't make sense for a platform with, you know, billions of people on it and, and things that sort of don't really fit across national divides entirely. Like it, they, and because, and if you did this for everything, people just have to spend all their time. If everyone used to be involved in the democratic process, it just take, it would take too much time. Um, and it's too easy to game and it's situated within this media ecosystem, which is itself the problem. And so one of the really interesting things about this, these assembly style processes and this general idea of mini publics is you just take a smaller sample of that broader public and that smaller, smaller sample can really dig into the issues. And so instead of, you know, 1% or less, I, I can't remember the exact numbers of Facebook users, like actually voting on the referendum, which like, who cares about the technicalities of the privacy policy? In theory, yes, but not really. You actually have a very small number of people who everyone in the world can, or everyone in whatever that jurisdiction is, can see themselves at least somewhat represented by that person. There's someone who had a life like theirs, someone who's dealing the same sort of problems as them. They're paid for their time. This is incredibly important. Otherwise, it really doesn't work. And they're ideally really supported. But in this case, you're creating an environment where people can dig into those messy, complex issues. And that's something that can work at a platform scale, whereas an election or referendum is just not going to succeed, as we've seen. I want to bring Joe and Renee into the conversation. Maybe, Joe, I'll start with you. Um, I thought of you when I saw this paper. Um, you, you were sort of, you know, earlier last summer um, proposing that we need to figure out how to uh, get our heads around uh, the stewardship of of global uh, collective behavior, um, and this in some way kind of chimed with that to me. This idea that maybe we could have some democratic governance mechanism that would allow us to better steward, you know, these platforms. What was your reaction to Aviv's idea? So I should start off by you know saying that I think the worst possible way to govern these platforms is to have an autocratic billionaire. So we're it's it's almost certainly going to be an improvement over where we currently are. You know, I find myself reading it, going back and forth between entirely in agreeing with it and then having these like sneaking doubts that I'm sure Aviv has as well when, when writing it, you know. So one of the, the primary things is just asking for, for many of these decisions, we don't actually even understand what the outcome would be in, in order to inform people. So, for example, um, in changing algorithmic policies, what will that actually do? So how absent the science and the evidence-based side of what these policies will yield, it's hard to understand how we'll ask people to make those decisions in an informed way. We have best guesses, right? But but sometimes we'll be asking people to make decisions with no real understanding of their ramifications because the science doesn't understand them. So I think one of the big hurdles is just that even the experts are pretty in the dark here as a first impression. Maybe Renee has thoughts? Yeah, so I think the first thing that came to mind when I read it was, again, conceptually, I love the idea of a legislative branch, if you will, right? We have an executive branch that has held power for a very long time. We had the emergence of a precedent-setting judicial branch in the form of the oversight board, um, which, you know, there's varying opinions on it. I personally think it's actually doing productive work at this point, now some of the most productive that we've seen. Where I lose the appreciation or the, you know, I have appreciation for the idea, but where I, where I struggle is with trying to think through the implementation. I feel like there are a lot of very overarching suggestions for platform governance 
And then when I try to think about the specific implementation is where I start to struggle. So for example, on a global platform, we lose that regionalization that you're talking about, where Ireland's abortion policy does not impact the U.S.'s abortion policy, does not impact Chile's or South Korea's or wherever else, because that regionalization, the deliberative function is 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 reflecting the values of that population, which are informed by culture. Now, the this is you could you could argue that the oversight board, the quote unquote judicial branch, for the sake of this analogy, has the same thing. They're kind of rooting it in uh, inter- international human rights laws and international human rights principles, um, foundational principles of freedom of expression, as opposed to the particular nuanced manifestation in one country versus another. But the challenge with Facebook is that the one policy, it's very difficult to regionalize in the, in the implementation of the platform as it, as it kind of currently is, is, is um, my understanding of a lot of the failures of other attempts to do these sorts of things. Like, how do you govern a global platform? Does there need to be a regionalization commitment that happens first in order for deliberative bodies to, to do the work that Aviv is envisioning here? So that would be sort of one top-level um, implementation question that comes to mind for me. Aviv, does this kind of, I don't know, spark that in your mind? I mean, I could, I could see following this to the logical end of, of Renee's critique here that, you know, just kind of brings us back to the question of, is it even possible to have global platforms that, you know, are for all comers that have the same rules across borders? Yeah, so... I completely agree with with both of those comments. I mean, I would hope that Alexander Hamilton and 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 so on. Like, I don't mean to put myself in those shoes, but just like at, whenever you're writing something like that, sort of, oh, this is how governance should be. If you don't have sneaking doubts, you're doing something very wrong because there <laughs> there are so many problems with anything that you can write down. I think it's really important to to see those sneaking doubts and then be like, okay, how do we explore those? And which of these can we put aside because it's it's good enough? It's better. Um, than what we have right now. And let's, let's try to make sure that we, we're building something that we can then improve. And this is just a test. And we're going to test it. We're going to do better. We're going to do better every time. And so that's sort of the way that I, I approach that. And then speaking to, to Renee's comments about the globe, the challenges of being a global platform. I mean, I completely agree. I think that there are a lot of challenges with that. And I, I chose a simpler example of political ads, um, because that is something that is, like there usually are local laws around that, um, which would be very hard to push back on. And, and, and platforms do implement specific regional policies, um, national policies based off local law for political ads in particular. So it's one of those cases where you really do want to think about it at a national level, at least to some extent. But there are a lot of questions which are far more applicable for a global platform, including if you have like a set of values or even a set of essentially laws or constitution-like structures that something like a, a judicial structure, like the, the oversight board, could then use to weigh on it. And for those, I think it does make sense to actually do global assemblies. Um, and global assemblies are much, much harder operationally for a whole host of reasons. There are now two, at least two implementations of global assemblies that are um, in progress. One connected to um, the uh, COP, the climate conference going on right now. Um, and there's another one around um, genetic experimentation, if I recall correctly. And so th- this is an, an active area of work. I would love to see t- tens of millions of dollars, billions of dollars going into 
figure out how to do this well, because I think it'd be useful for the existential crises that we face as a society. And so if platforms are helping put that money in because they need it in order to feel like, you know, they're able to act in a more principled way, you know, appear less like, you know, king-like dictators um, and push back against um, governments which are forcing to do things that really do go against their existing values, you know, whether it be, you know, Putin or, you know, just there's just so many examples now, like across the world from Myanmar, Russia, um, Singapore, like, like just there's so many places where you actually do want a real mandate, a global mandate um, that isn't just based off the CEO's like preconceived notions. And it would be helpful in terms of their ability to have the people behind them and the decisions that they're making. And so that's where I really feel like, like, like the global component is incredibly valuable. Does that bring us back though, to Joe's kind of a priori concern about empirical evidence for, you know, one decision versus the next is, is part of this, you know, I guess conflict that we've got now in Facebook and arguably in YouTube and maybe a couple of other networks that have achieved such scale. We've got these platforms that are operating at immense global scale and yet we don't really know how they work we don't know how they impact society we don't really know how they perturb our politics with the way we interact with each other you know as part of those billions you'd like to see put towards the process like this got to go to r&d research social science i don't know joe does that chime with you yeah i think one question that this also raises in my mind is um it's not clear to me that even certainly a given platform, but even any platforms at scale are compatible with a healthy society. So if it is the case, for instance, that there's no implementation of Facebook that is safe and uh, robust to say causing genocide or, or harm in other ways, the best option may be to shut Facebook down. And so I'd wonder, you know, if Aviv thinks that this body could turn the platform off as one of its decision-making abilities. Um, and if not, you know, is there some presupposition that platforms are can be made workable? Um, and, and if so, you know, what do we do if that's not the case? I think that we are going to have collective communication systems at global scale, regardless of whether or not platforms exist. The only question is whether or not those systems are governed or ungoverned. And I would prefer them to be governed in some capacity, because if they are not governed, you end up with a situation where there are no values behind anything. There's no jurisdiction. There's nothing. There's nothing that's actually guiding that to a place where it actually can be healthy for democracy. And so I, I guess I see that as, as the alternative. And you can think about this super concretely in terms of like SMS, like literally that protocol technology, email, you can see correlations between intergroup violence um, and SMS um, adoption in, in some regions. And so like that, like it, it's, this isn't, Facebook is part of the problem in some ways, like the specific recommendations, but it, but it really is about the fact that we are connecting the world and that is not going to change without like a giant EMP blast. So I guess kind of to, to reframe uh, a little bit, what I was asking is, you know, should this be across platforms? In other words, like maybe keep um, Wikipedia, delete Facebook, like would they have that sort of cross-platform decision-making capability? Or is it always a mandate to fix a specific platform? I agree with the point that we'll always have some form of global communication, but the, the number of forms and shapes and types it could take seems, seems widely varying. And it's almost like this body might be rendered a bit less capable if it's not able to, you know, plow one under in order to make space for something new. 
Excuse me, the applicability question is interesting. I know when Facebook Oversight Board was being considered, many of us thought, okay, well, this is going to be interesting because if the Oversight Board makes a determination that Facebook wrongly took something down, because platforms often do move in lockstep, uh, there is an implied pressure created for Twitter, for example, which may have made the same decision to you know, be potentially subject to additional public pressure or um, to, to be observed as being uh, not in keeping with the best practices of, of social media content moderation because of a decision made by board members, uh, oversight board members kind of that were paid by a competitor. So there's some interesting questions around that. So I like this idea of more of a um, wholly independent uh, model as a, you know, something that that does consider the ecosystem as an ecosystem. I'm curious, I think, about ways in which so much of the the nitty gritty, the the matter, like again, it, it gets down to the implementation. We can we can establish best practices for social media as a whole, for recommendation engines as a whole. The manifestation of of some of the things looks a little bit different. And that, again, I think gets to is the function of the body to come up with kind of loftier, higher level best practices and uh, and visions for, you know, a sort of constitution, if you will, for these things or, or um, laws for individual platforms versus versus tackling that that bigger question of what is most beneficial for society in this interconnected communication system that we have today, which is what Joe is referring to, I think, when he talks about this idea of um, can any network exist at this at this scale and size in a healthy way? regardless of the manifestation of a particular affordance, which is governed by a particular policy. I see the ideal set of outcomes here is this sort of network of democratic processes, some of which are assembly-based for everything. Like that's sort of the, you know, pie in the sky. And so I think there is a real place for both cross-platform. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of, you know, moving on that. I'm trying to work with some civil society organizations and encouraging them to sort of just do some of this independently. But I think there's also value for doing it within a platform for the reasons that I've already already described. And so I think that there's a lot of room here to just start exploring these approaches. And, I, that, and that's really sort of the call here is like, how, like, what are the things that we're not even looking at? We're looking at, we, we look at, you know, there's this list of like self-regulation and then there's, you know, government regulation and there's so much more that we could be exploring and some of that has really significant potential to un at least address some of the, the pieces of problems and there's going to be all these like nitty-gritty issues that are very very challenging and the only way to actually figure those out is to is to deal with them but the status quo is clearly a problem i was gonna say i do wholeheartedly agree with that i mean i appreciate the um the boldness of the proposal and the fact that you know i think we do have to get into this um what I call the kind of like the boring stuff now, right? <laughs> what is the nitty gritty that um, that actually makes a change? Do we change at the margins? Do we rethink, you know, from the ground up? What's the time horizon of the change? Do we get down? Are, are we looking at features and affordances and design? I mean, the the again, the very boring rejoinder that we've all heard so many times that I'll just say again is uh, we don't have the the data transparency to assess a lot of the theoretical harms that we believe are happening. We have glimpses from whistleblowers. We have kind of um, small-scale experiments that try to replicate some of the dynamics, I, I, it really does, you know, anytime we think about what kind of policy should govern a particular dynamic, what kind of policy should govern 
a particular affordance or you know what what even what design structures should be considered best practices for a particular affordance, we really just don't have very much to base those claims on. And I hate being the person who says like we just don't have enough data. Um, but I <laughs> I do I really want to see us like moving concurrently in that direction also so that we can tackle things like this and look at proposals like this to get a sense of is there a marked difference in regional use of certain types of tools, right? Is there a is there a global question here or is it possible to address some of these things much more regionally? I'd love to have more concrete answers to that to understand the value of um, how such a deliberative body could be structured. Quick response to that. First of all, I think that the data transparency issue is incredibly important. Um, and I see this, again, as being a process which can be used to create a mandate for a very specific deciding what of all the things that could be transparent, what should those be? And again, getting into the nitty gritty, there's so many little details about how to structure that and ensure that that conversation is productive. I think there are ways to do it. But secondly, we're also very, very spoiled by the data that we that can exist. In the past, we've had lots of governance without as much data, and there's lots of downsides to that. But I mean, if we, we might go to a regime, and in many cases, we will be in a regime where we are not that spoiled, places like Telegram and WhatsApp. Um, and so I think we do need to be using things inside and outside of the platform to be ensuring that we're able to make wise decisions. And ideally, um, there's a number of things that one could talk about in terms of how to do that. I have a kind of related thought here, which is, you know, one thing that makes decisions in these digital spaces quite different from from decisions made, say, by democracies in the past is often the design of the platform requires, you know, explicitly stating how networks are connected, for example. So things that we tried to encourage in the past, ways that people would connect or otherwise, now are, are mathematical decisions in the in the structure of the software and code. And so in a sense, um, the data becomes important because we're making very, uh, very well specified or very strictly specified decisions about the structure of society. And coming to that end, you know, data availability might be a feature of a platform that we need to encourage. Something like Twitter, where everyone can access data, allows the entirety of academics to at least look for problems in the platform um, and allows Twitter to study itself in a, in a different way. And so we might, not to get into the debate about end-to-end encryption, but you know, do you envision that a part of this might be deciding how much transparency and how much complexity um, a platform can have in order to make it tractable for analysis? I, I think about this in the same way that I think about governance more generally. Pla- like platforms have the power of violence in a sense within the platform space. They can arbitrarily remove. They are they are then their own little mini state powers within their environments. And so anything that applies to a government applies here. And so just as we can ask our democratic, I mean, our, 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 you know, our governments to be like, you need more transparency on this. We have, this is the foil, et cetera. Like there's just like, there's so many pieces of infrastructure that we've been able to build through that. And I think that like charting a path where these, you know, incredibly powerful large companies that have the power of violence in spaces that are, in, that are so important to everyone, to people's everyday's life and well being. And like ability to like just run their business, we need to have that level of power, and and we need to be built be charting a path toward that sort of self determination. And so yes, I I, can, I very much agree that that platform democracy mechanisms, whether they be um, assemblies or other approaches, and like I only explored that one here, and there's a whole suite of other approaches that are applicable for different types of situations. This is just one that is so interesting and applicable to the problems that most directly face 
like a platform CEOs and regulators today, right now, like, oh my God, everything's on fire. So one of the things that I thought about reading this was the set of ideas that some folks are pursuing at the moment. We spent some time talking about them uh, in a forum that Tech Policy Press uh, hosted recently. Just the idea of, of decentralization and of really kind of separating out the different bits of social media networks to really reduce their scale and reduce their size altogether. So possibly to introduce a lot more dynamism in terms of the way that people interact with social media networks and can make their own decisions about whether they have a certain set of affordances or filters or uh, other types of mechanisms that change the way they interact. Um, how would this fit with that? Uh, can, can you imagine a, a decentralized future where uh, maybe, you know, regional decisions might be taken or uh, decisions taken in certain communities might only apply to certain elements of the network as opposed to having to scale to the whole global network? So I think there is a lot of value to decentralization in some areas, but I like I have this term that I, I use a lot called the, the magical decentralization fallacy. And it's, I define it as the mistaken belief that decentralization on its own can address governance problems, right? And governance problems include things like misinformation and harassment. Because it doesn't, like, decentralization on its own does so little to actually address those problems and makes it almost much, much, much harder to actually address them in practice. Because the, the, you're moving governance from people to the sort of code juggernaut that cannot be moved, cannot be changed, cannot be adjusted in any way. And sure, there are ways to build governance on top of decentralized protocols, and there's a lot of work exploring that. But most of that work is very simplistic and sort of more often, very often referendum-based, liquid democracy-based. These mechanisms that just don't work for like the real world with the people who live have lives, um, and like just dealing with the day-to-day -day of being poor in the world. And so, I think that decentralization is incredibly valuable in particular domains. And that it doesn't solve these these problems, and it, it really doesn't solve the problems where where its collective agency is important. You cannot solve with decentralization the problem of sensationalism, sensationalism, and divisiveness being the things that are rewarded both by human psychology and by by recommendation engines, because people want that in many cases. They instinctively want it. But democracy allows us to take a step back, think about what we really want, not what we instinctively want and allows us to make a collective decision that then affects everyone. And I think that actually helps get past that really unfortunate challenge of like, oh, I just want this thing that's going to give me dopamine right now. And you all know people in your lives who are sucked in to something and it'd be really great to, to have a little bit more of that collective agency over that individual agency in order to support them to live a life that they would even love to live if they could take a step back. Renee, Joe, any final questions or, or comments? One kind of thought comes to mind, which is just the the fact that the companies that that run these platforms, you know, unlike other democratic decision making contexts, have quite a bit of control over the information people see, including the people who've been making the decisions. And so there's, you know, there's an interesting kind of paradox here, which is somehow you have to democratically decide to be able to democratically decide, and it gets recursive there a bit. Um, so it's easy to imagine, for example, platforms swaying the decision makers in the direction of their, their preferred outcome. Do you have any strategies for independence of the decision makers from the platform they're deciding about? Particularly like targeted advertising, for example, it might be easy to trivially find who has you know, been hired to do this and 
send them ads about what you prefer the outcome to be or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, that's true of governments also. Like, I don't, I don't see any of these as being unique problems. There's sort of two types of problems. There's problems that are specific to um, the platform assemblies, and there's problems that are just like citizen assembly problems or government problems, problems that have already been solved elsewhere or at least dealt with, like through hacks and, you know, various mechanisms. And, and so I, I, don't, I see that being a, it's, being a, it's a problem, but it's a solvable problem or it's a good enough solvable problem. Renee, any final word, final thought? I just want to say I appreciate the uh, the proposal here, and I'm curious: Are you continuing to work on this further with more specificity, or or approaching any platform managers about it? What are what are next steps for your work? Yes, yeah, so I am trying. Well, so I'm working with talking to a number of platforms about this. There's some that are um, more interested than others. Let's put it that way. Some are very interested. I think it's exciting to sort of see that there is at least some appetite for this. Um, I'd love to see more people who like their job at platforms is to be exploring these things, to be running pilots, to be, to be just like making this a part of their OKRs, of their roadmaps. And so I, I think that that is like really important that you have people whose work is not just lobbying, is not just deciding policy, but is exploring new mechanisms for making that policy. And so that should be on every roadmap and it should be something that's prioritized to give a headcount um, and really trying to push for that. And I'm also working, like advocating for civil society organizations um, and funders to be investing in, in doing this independently or even taking platform funding to do so, which then creates at least a little bit of a, of a mandate around it, even if it's not a, a firm commitment. So those are, those are two tracks. Um, I'll also be fleshing out some of the uh, additional mechanisms. So we talked about platform assemblies. There are other approaches that are also really helpful. And then exploring collaborations to really dive into the details of how this this would happen. Though I'm incredibly excited to have other people be sort of diving into that too. And so the more more work that's in this space, the, the better. Well, Joe, Aviv, Renee, thank you very much. And Aviv, thank you for putting these ideas forward. Thank you for having us. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.